This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Charlie Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Paul Caroli, and you are listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Kelly Bruff. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So, Kelly, you've been campaigning for a while now. I would love to hear about uh, a new place you've been to or something that's new to you that you've loved in Denver. Oh, my goodness. Do you know where I spend uh, most of my time is in the living rooms uh, throughout the city? Honestly, in hindsight, I wish I would have just taken a picture of every living room and then done a coffee table book so you could all see uh, decorating tips and how different uh, our city looks depending on where you're at. So that's been kind of the coolest part. I also do coffees with Kelly. So I've been in every coffee shop, I think, in Denver, wherever our residents, our supporters love the most. Do you have a new favorite? No, I can't say that. I love them all. You love them all equally. <laughs> okay. Very diplomatic. What about, I'm interested in the living rooms, actually. Yeah. Are there style trends? Like, are there <laughs> things all Denverites have in their living rooms? No, no. It's so cool because it's just so, di actually, the reason I wish I would have taken a picture, and I may do this, especially if I am successful in this run, uh, but ask people to send pictures of their living rooms. Um, and we kind of highlight our city that way because it's a very intimate way to understand the diversity of of our city. Uh, and it's so cool to see. It's just so cool. Well, Kelly, we talked on the show a couple of years ago when you were leaving the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, where you were president and CEO. Um, at the time, you were coy about the possibility of running for mayor. Yeah. You, you had a reaction. What are you thinking? Yeah. What's in your mind right now about that um, moment? I wasn't trying to be coy. Uh, here's what was happening. Um, my father was terminally ill when I was leaving the chamber. And I actually thought I wasn't going to consider running for office um, because I wanted to help take care of my dad and my mom, and I got to do that. But my dad wasn't as good with my decision. Um, so last late last spring, he said to me, you know, if you're not running, I'll never forgive you. And I said, haven't you become an I used a bad word, in your old age. <laughs> okay. Can I use a bad word? Yeah, uh, please. Haven't you become an asshole at the age of 82? And uh <laughs> Uh, and what I talked to my dad about was he felt uh, the combination of my family's personal experience. We've had some real challenges in our life. And my professional experience prepared me for this moment in this office. And he asked me to consider it. And I did. And when I started sitting in living rooms of friends and neighbors, um, I decided to jump into the race because I'm committed to making the De Denver the city I know we can be for our kids. Well, the, the next side of this same question is, uh, why do you think you'd be a good mayor? Yeah, it's such a hard job. Uh, this also took me a while to decide. There were kind of two questions I asked. Uh, one is, it's a huge operation. It's a huge job. And I think it's more complex today than when I was chief of staff to John Hickenlooper and the head of HR for the city. I definitely know the city well. But I also felt pretty confident. I know the city well. 
I know the city team. I have deep respect. I love them. So that part, I felt like I think I could really help run this massive operation and address some of the issues. But the second part for me was really, can you govern today? Uh, I'm not interested in the title. I'm interested in uh, improving some of the issues we see in our city from you know, the workers can't afford to live in the city that they work um, to uh, unhoused and what's happening uh, in terms of how humanely we're treating uh, and addressing uh, our homeless crisis in the city uh, to public safety or community safety. Those were my top three issues. And uh, after spending time with people who are on the extremes of those issues, I realized I think there's also a way to bring our city together and find a path forward. So the combination of my professional experience and my belief uh, that there is a path forward, that we can improve our city together and in the right ways, and I'm up to leading it. Can I level with you about something? Of course. Just, there's just like, you, you used a couple of words there to describe the unhoused crisis, you know, and I just struggled with it too. You said unhoused, you said homeless. We deal with this all the time on our show. What language to use to describe yeah. this? I know it's a small part, and we're going to talk about the other aspects of this later, but how do you think about the way you talk about that issue yeah. on the campaign trail? Yeah. For me, I, I typically refer to people who are experiencing homelessness as unhoused or people experiencing homelessness. I see them as human beings, uh, residents in our city uh, who we haven't fulfilled our commitment to. That's how I see it. All right. I've got a question for you from the news. This is a topic that's been in the news for several years, but a recent study found that scooters, that's what it is. It's scooters. I'm not going to back into it. A recent study found that at least three people per day go to Denver Health's emergency room with scooter-related injuries. It's obviously a controversial topic for other reasons too. Um, and I believe Lime and Lyft are still the only companies permitted with the city to operate here. Those licenses are going to expire under the next mayor's first term. What's your stance on scooters? Yeah, I think um, I'm a cyclist. Let's start with that. So I've commuted on my bike for 30 years. I think micromobility is critical to addressing uh, our transportation needs. That said, um, while I appreciate people being injured, you know, I've wrecked on my bike a few times. Uh, I'm just as sensitive, though, with regard to scooters of reckless behavior that's actually injuring other pedestrians and unsafe practices. I think that's probably what I would focus on in those contracts is how do we make sure we're holding riders accountable because the some of the really horrific uh, accidents have been with pedestrians on the sidewalk or uh, who are not using the scooter, but the scooters are running into. Well, what about the what about the issue of like cessation of public space to these companies? What about the companies oh, themselves? Because yeah. they just yeah. dropped these scooters on our streets, didn't really talk to the the city at all. Right. Yeah, they're in our right away. I think to your point. Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, I think the city did negotiate uh, those rules in that contract. I think we have to re-examine them. And again, I think this goes back to how do you if we want to keep these kind of micro assets, and we should be talking about transportation when we talk about the solution to this because it all fits together. Uh, but uh, if we believe we have to have kind of last mile solutions, this is probably part of it. I think this is where how do those companies hold their riders accountable for where they're stopping those, setting them down, um, and the impact. Mm -hmm. 
And so I do think you can have a contract with expectations like that in it. Mm, okay. Well, transportation broadly. Yeah. What do you think our needs are? <laughs> Listen, uh, we're one of the worst cities in the nation for single occupancy vehicles. I know we all don't want to hear this, but it's kind of shocking, especially because we're Denver and we know we're capable of doing better than what we're doing today. That said, uh, as a cyclist, um, and I often have uh, taken transit when I don't ride, when the weather isn't as good, our vision zero to you know stop killing cyclists and pedestrians is the worst it's ever been. And we've been making investments, right, to make cycling safer and uh, walking safer. It really highlights for me, we might need to do a reset here um, because it requires, I think, two things. One is what changes behavior in all of us? Uh, what do we need to change that behavior? And we have to do that. Our roads, we can't add roads. We can't add lanes. Uh, we just don't have the land and the capacity. So it really does require us to put our heads together. And I don't think you get to do that as government alone, right? Because I'm trying to change someone else's behavior. Well, we, there is a proposal to add lanes to Pena Boulevard right now. Yeah, listen, uh, uh, Pena Boulevard is a, is an interesting one. It's actually, I don't know if you know this, paid for by Denver International Airport, which are not tax dollars, public dollars. Uh, but those dollars all come from the operation of the airport. And uh, that's another great example, though, right, of we're not riding that train like we expected we would. And I can tell you, having been part of not only the initial passage of Fast Tracks, uh, but follow-up to maximizing that investment, that is the line we all love the most. And we're not taking it. And my guess is we don't feel safe on it, and it's not as convenient. And again, I think that goes back to figuring out what would it take to get you on it uh, to try to address those kind of expenses of expansion. And Pena Boulevard is a huge challenge. By the way, did you know? Denver International Airport is the third busiest airport in the nation, the eighth busiest in the world now. Wow. It, yeah. It's our port. It's so important to us economically. So getting more people on public transit, changing individual behaviors. That's what I'm hearing from yeah. you. Yeah. And I think it could be things like um, in Montbello, we have a circulator right now. And when you talk with residents in Montbello, they'll tell you it's really kind of nice if you're not on a schedule. Uh, if you kind of have flexibility, but if you need to be on time and you're trying to get to an appointment, it's not as reliable. I think that's good information to have about if you're trying to take these kinds of options to get to work, uh, you probably don't have the flexibility. And so what do we have to do uh, to improve that? I also think it's a chance for us as we think about that micro kind of last mile or first mile, how could we electrify the fleets that we might use to do this. What size do they really need to be? Do they need to be the kind of historic size of a massive bus we have running all over the city? Like questions like that, I think we could answer community by community. Community by community. Yeah, we're because the truth is- To electrify what, buses. No, 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 electrifying buses, not. But that kind of smaller, what does this community need? And uh, here's why I believe that. If you're win within half a mile of a light rail station, you need much less to help you get to that station than if you're not. And we have a number of parts of our city that are much further out. So that's why I say, I think you gotta talk to the residents to say what really works. As a cyclist, I'll give you an example. I rode every neighborhood in Denver this summer. It was really fun if you ever wanna go. Uh, I wanna do it again. Uh, but here's what I really noticed. On the west side of town, northeast Denver, way hotter than everywhere else. No tree canopy. I wouldn't get out of my car over there either. 
I think it's things like that, right? That you learn when you come into a community and you start to experience it with them. The kind of things we probably have to change or address. You riding an e-bike these days? No, or, I'm uh, still pedaling. There you go. Okay. <laughs> How do you feel about the e-bike program? What would you do with it? Yeah, I really like it, right? I think, listen, um, someone asked me the other day, am I going to make everyone commute to work on, on a bike if I get elected? I'm not. Don't panic. Uh, but e-bikes are a wonderful way that if you're not feeling as confident or you have much further to go, uh, that you could probably start to use an e-bike. I love the rebates. Uh, and making them more accessible to more people in our community. You, you brought up the Vision Zero. We're talking about you know getting more people on public transit. I feel like all of it revolves around convincing Denverites to use their cars less. And that's such a difficult conversation to have because people love their cars. The city was designed for cars. How, how do you do that? Like, tell me as a as a car driver, what do you say to me? Or that how do I? Why would I want to do that? Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons you're, we're getting more motivated to do it. Uh, one is the price of gas. If I can make it significantly less expensive for you to take an alternative form when you have to, you know, commute into work, or I think that's really interesting to a lot of Denverites. Uh, and I would argue land use and our decisions around the land use are probably the number one determining factor that helps people make that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the the cost of a car, uh, and I think. You know, people are paying closer attention to that, especially when you consider the cost of housing here. And so I think cost is a really leading factor that makes people maybe want to have alternatives that could give them options and save them some money. And then uh, climate. I think we are all seriously motivated, certainly the next couple of generations, recognizing this is a crisis. And the reality is we do have to change our behavior. And then, of course, time. Uh, well, How so? it's uh, I don't know if you've driven lately, uh, but for everybody working from home, there is still a lot of traffic out there and it's much slower getting anywhere you're going. And so these alternative forms can actually maybe start to speed, right? They're competitive then in terms of time as you're sitting in traffic versus uh, coming through on a, a train or a bus that gets priority. In some cases, I, I think uh, depending on where you live, that might yep, be the case. Totally agree. Um, all right. Well, I've, let's move on. I've got a, a question for you about your experience. Um, you mentioned that you served as chief of staff for then mayor John Hickenlooper. What did you learn from him about what it means to be mayor? Huh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So much. I suppose maybe the number one thing you learn is uh, the team you hire is the most important decision you're going to make. Frankly, if you've ever been a manager anywhere, I think you've learned that lesson. Uh, but I would just say Senator Hickenlooper really... Uh, recognized how important that decision was, and I just got to work with amazing people. Uh, so that was one lesson. Another one was, the truth is, uh, we don't accomplish really anything on our own. Uh, and I say this in terms of the Denver mayor, uh, when I think of how much you need the region to address some of the most complex challenges, um, uh, like how we address people who are unhoused in our region. We need to be doing it together. Uh, and I've already met with mayors throughout the region to talk with them about partnership and collaboration to address this huge challenge that so many in our region are facing today. And I would say Senator Hickenlooper was a real model of how you do it and how you make progress by working together. But I would also say he did it uh, across sectors like public, private, and nonprofit. Again, uh, I took that lesson when I went to the chamber and recognized the most complex issues we face are only going to be solved when all three are working together to address those issues because we each have a superpower and we got to put them all in, you know, to address the challenges. Those would be some of the things I felt like I learned. Um, so your first point was uh, hiring the right people. 
Yeah. Do you have anyone in mind? No, I don't. Uh, I'm still, uh, you know, just running to get into a runoff. Uh, but certainly, I think um, for me, I think of this like a team, not kind of position by position. Um, and I think what makes a great team is uh, people with really different backgrounds, uh, different skill sets. They see the world differently. Uh, that your cabinet relies on each other to get work done. And, and you don't work independently in silos, um, but you lean on each other and each other's strengths. And so I think what you could expect from me is an extremely diverse team uh, with vastly different backgrounds and maybe a little less traditional. You know, I, I've also learned in my life that, you know, a degree or specific direct experience uh, isn't always what you need. Um, sometimes there's, you know, other skill sets that are way more important and the city has a lot of talent in it already. So I would be making decisions like that as well, kind of opening my mind to who could run different departments and what that collective team could look like. It sounds like you're you're thinking about a specific instant, a specific memory or a story from your <laughs> life. I mean, what is <laughs> yeah, that? I'm curious. It was probably mine. Um, you know, most of my career has actually been in the public sector. And when I applied to be the head of the Chamber of Commerce, you know, I think they were like, oh my goodness, why would we hire this chick? She, uh, you know, comes out of the public sector. Um, she doesn't have uh, private sector experience or much of it. And yet I would say, I think that was my strength is I saw the world a little differently. And uh, and I think in hindsight, they would all say it was absolutely a strength. Um, let's move on to a question from a listener. Harry B writes, I would love to hear how they are planning to address the rising hate crimes against the Asian American community in Denver, while also balancing the fact that many people of color are afraid of police presence in their neighborhood. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, you're, you're, to this point, you said it was from Harry? Harry B. Thanks, Harry. I think this point, uh, not only with Asian Americans, we certainly are also seeing it in our Jewish community and a couple of things. I think the mayor has the ability to not only express um, you know, our values and to live those every single day, but to in really concrete ways, uh, make sure we're confronting when we're not seeing that instead of staying silent. And I would take that very seriously as mayor of making sure we're express, expressing openly our support, our commitment, that re reflecting uh, that diversity on our teams. Uh, so those the voices are continually being brought up in front of people. Uh, I also think, of course, uh, the city might be responsible for some of those crimes, but more likely it is not. The city who would prosecute those hate crimes I think would go, um, the district attorney is who would uh, investigate. Uh, but I also think this is a chance for the mayor to make sure we're providing the support and the resources to investigate those crimes in a way that uh, we hold people accountable and we express our values through that. And then, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to follow up and say, what about the police presence specifically? Because yeah. that's such yeah. a hard problem. There's not a lot of trust there between yeah. communities of color and the police. And never has been. Uh, I think we have to work to build trust. I don't think we can give up on it. Uh, but I think this is also an opportunity for us to recognize some steps uh, Mayor Hancock has already taken in this regard that are working. And that is uh, that we often don't need police who respond uh, to issues um, and using our STAR program, our co-responder program, so that as we're addressing even issues like this, uh, it can be mental health professionals or uh, someone focused more on uh, emotional health and the issues that come out from these kinds of crimes who are working directly with community. 
And uh, um, I have spent some time really studying the STAR program, its funding. I would increase it by at least 50%. Uh, I think there's a chance our data, I looked at the data at 911, could support doubling it. Uh, and I'd watch that closely because I think this is another example of where those resources might make more sense. But I also want to say this. I think we have to uh, work together uh, with community to say, how do we begin to actually build trust? What does that look like? Uh, what steps do we take? Uh, for me, this is driven by, I believe we have to change the culture of our police department. Uh, one that is open and really transparent. People can give feedback regularly, even if it's hard for the officers to hear. And that we get in the habit of asking for that feedback, not just when things go really wrong, but in our day-to-day -day interactions. So we're always improving, always building. And we don't see it as threatening that people need to tell us there's things we have to do differently. And I would really devote time and energy to creating that kind of culture in the department and displaying as mayor being capable of taking feedback like that, uh, changing my own behavior when it's needed, but also helping our department change its so we can build that trust because we do need to. It's important for all of us. Feedback. That's interesting. I don't know if I've heard that idea before for changing a culture of a police department. But I, I know that when I go to my neighborhood association meetings, there's a police officer there who sometimes gives a little presentation. I'm sure if I went to their website, I could I find an email address. I could send a comment or a complaint. But are there other forums you'd set up or is there a, some other way to facilitate a conversation? Because I don't think the people who have no trust in the police are, are going to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think um, it doesn't make sense for me to say, here's the structure I built for you. Uh, so what I would do is go into community and say, what makes sense? How do we begin? Uh, you help us do this in a manner that you actually think could work and we could start to build relationship. Uh, and if it doesn't work, you help us change it. Uh, because I think we've spent too much time where uh, the city is deciding how, why you should trust us or what we're going to do to help you trust us instead of the community telling us how you build that relationship. So even broader than this, on this topic of, of safety and crime, I mean, these words have come up a lot in this campaign. They mean different things to different people. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about safety and crime generally. What, what do those words mean to you? Safety and crime mean two very different things to me. Safety means um, it can be both a perception of safe and it can be a reality of what's happening. And so to me, safety is the thing we each decide in our neighborhoods, in our community, if it's working. Uh, crime is tracking numbers and we've defined what crime is in this nation and deciding are those numbers high or low? And it's much more what I would associate with police and the reason we have police. Uh, to me, uh, the focus um, for the next mayor really needs to be on safety. Uh, I think crime is a component of it, but I think it's a component. Uh, and it's an important one, don't get me wrong. Um, but so how I think about safety are things like I said, I'd expand the STAR program. Mm -hmm. It's about getting people the services and support that keep them safe, uh, that work. Uh, I would make sure we have police officers who are able to respond to 911, and we have call takers who take your call when you call, you know, are able to support and hold them accountable to do the job we have to do. To me, that's the crime. It's you called, we responded. But real safety 
is long-term. It focuses on the drivers of crime. And this is where I think some of our greatest opportunity lies as a city. So we know if you get a really good education, you have access to true economic opportunity, you have stable housing, you have health care that helps you address your both mental and, and physical health needs, we know crime will go down. You'll call 911 less often. Our community will have less crime issues. And we know you'll feel safer. And so to me, this is the part that the next mayor gets the chance to help an entire cabinet, every single department, focus on how do you, what's your contribution to the safety of our community, whether it's economic development or it's the safety nets of our human services department, or it's our educational system in Denver Public Schools. But I see the next mayor is really needing to focus on what I consider the drivers of making communities safe. Let's move on to a couple of questions that, well, we got this whole batch of questions that we're asking everybody. I pull a couple for for each person. This one I thought would be interesting for you because I know, you know, we mentioned you were with the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. I want to ask you about the downtown dilemma, this situation with downtown. Businesses are suffering. Commuters aren't all returning. Even McDonald's can't make it work on the 16th Street Mall anymore. What would you do to bring life back to downtown? Yeah, uh, I would say I think downtown's in a crisis. Today, maybe 50% of our workers have come back into the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Let's, if we're honest about it, which means all of that retail and restaurants, just like McDonald's, they don't make it because you don't have the uh, customers there to help support your business. I think we have five office buildings that are being turned back to their lenders, receivership, foreclosure in downtown Denver. Uh, it's a real crisis. And listen, our city, our region is only as strong as our downtown. It's critical. So uh, what I did is I, I asked the question, has there been another city in our country's history who faced uh, exodus of companies, had a lot of office space, and transitioned it to residential? And it turns out in the 1990s, Manhattan did. Um, in the 1990s, Manhattan had really high crime downtown. People also didn't feel safe. Companies left. And they focused on what would it take to transition that office building to residential. And they provided incentives and credits to try to help make it happen. And it really worked. It was highly effective. I would look at the same kind of opportunity here. Uh, we have a housing crisis we know we need more units. We know downtown should be dense. This is where you really want your density. Uh, so I would work to figure out what kind of incentives and credits could we offer and what kind of role could the city even play, uh, maybe the state, in trying to help facilitate that transition because it's an expensive one. Uh, 1600 Glenarm is an apartment building today, but uh, back in the day, it was a bank and a commercial office building. I even talked with the people who transitioned that to get an understanding. And I think working together, uh, we have real potential for some of these offices to become the residential we desperately need downtown. But at the same time, I'd focus, and by the way, the upside of that is now you get customers and residents, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, instead of uh, workers here just 40 hours a week. And so it really builds a neighborhood downtown. But to do that, I think we also have to think about other investments like um, how could I help facilitate childcare and ensuring people have access to childcare downtown? It's a huge barrier uh, for so many families and particularly uh, women in the workplace today. 
And I think this may be an, also, an opportunity for us to look at how some of those buildings uh, could also have childcare in them. Uh, so now you're working and living downtown and you have great quality care for your kids as well. That uh, I'd think of it like we're building a neighborhood. Would that be like, would those be like city funded childcare programs? Yeah. Well, so today, um, you know, the city does have a Denver preschool program. It's up for reauthorization in 2024, six, I forget which, maybe 2026. Um, but it would be pretty quickly that you'd want to go to the ballot for that reauthorization. The opportunity with that program is that the state has now funded full day K and pre moving into preschool. I would suggest we start seriously looking at our preschool, our own preschool program to go earlier for families. Uh, so younger kids could now have access to those programs. Um, and so it would obviously be a private operator who would run that childcare center. Uh, but I think our own program could help fund uh, families being able to access. Well, this downtown situation, it's so big and abstract too. And it's so it's also interconnected. I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just this one very specific program. I've been kind of obsessed with this program. It's the the thing that Downtown Denver Partnership has been trying with free rent for pop-ups. It pop sounds like you're familiar. Um, for listeners who aren't, uh, the partnership offered free rent to local businesses wanting to set up brick and mortar shops last summer. I think they did it for five businesses. I believe none of those with employees on site are still open today. The people who closed said like safety and crime issues made it too expensive. What do you think about that program? Yeah, I love it too. Uh, but it also highlights you can't e even building residential downtown. We do have to create that people feel safe and that it is safe. And so this is part of, I think, the partnership literally between the downtown Denver partnership and businesses downtown and the city uh, to look at, uh, come up with strategies of what improves safety. We know what some of them are, certainly maybe some more police officers, uh, but I actually think it may be some other things like uh, we're under construction on the mall today. And that fencing can cause you to feel a little more isolated. And so are there things we could do while we're finishing that construction that don't feel so isolating? Uh, I even think, um, you know, cleanliness in our history, people would visit our city and they would say, Denver's so clean. And, you know, that sends a message of pride in your city. So I wonder if that's something we could come together and say, we want to, you know, do kind of do a do-over on how we're going to maintain our downtown. And then, of course, I really think this is where we have to make a commitment. We're going to house and shelter people who are unhoused, uh, because I think that adds to uh, people's fear and feelings of fear downtown. And I think it's inhumane how people are living. And I think downtown and the surrounding neighborhoods um, experience, you know, and and struggle the most with figuring out how do you provide the right supports and help. And this is a space we know uh, we have all have some responsibility to help solve. Well, while we're on the topic of uh, homelessness, I know we've touched on it a couple of times. Um, you have a plan to end unsheltered homelessness in your first year as mayor, I believe is the yeah. one. Unsanctioned camping. Unsanctioned camping. Yeah. Okay. And so let me, what does that mean? How does that, what does yeah. that look like? Yeah. Yeah, for me, this really comes from a recognition of what we do today is really not working. So bear with me. I'll describe quickly kind of what happens today. People who have nowhere to go live on our streets, uh, primarily downtown and surrounding neighborhoods, but throughout the region. And what happens when those encampments pose a public health or a public safety issue, the city comes in and notices them that they have to move along. 
And they move down the block, across the street, to the next neighborhood. And a few weeks later, we do it all again. I see it not only as inhumane, but ineffective. And I feel strongly we have to do something different. We have to get people to safer locations. But we know we don't have the right locations or enough to get everyone indoors immediately. So in the interim and temporarily, I would sanction safe sites uh, that are, they'd have to be outdoors, but where we could get um, supports and services to people more easily and uh, they would be safer than they are today. And I would immediately help move people to get them to those sites uh, while we build the housing and shelter that we actually need in the long term are to get everyone indoors. Are you talking about like the safe outdoor spaces? Yeah, very similar. Okay. So just uh, more of those? Our, yeah. So people really do have some support, right? Like running water, bathrooms, trash, receptacles, uh, that uh, outreach workers can get to people more easily to connect them to the services and supports they need. That's exactly what I'm referring to. With the ice fishing tents or without? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd rely on the experts to help us figure out uh, what do we need to make these as safe and workable as possible temporarily. Well, I think you'd need a place for people to sleep if you'd want them to yeah, be safe Yes, yes, yes. I, I, okay. Yes, we would need a place. They would be sleeping. These would be sanctioned locations. Yeah. Okay. How many? I think that depends on, right? Uh, do we, how much housing and bed space do we have available today that can get people indoors? And what don't we have? But it also depends on something else, the region. So I've met with mayors throughout the region uh, to talk with them about that uh, Denver can't do this alone. And frankly, the success of their cities is, is dependent on the success of Denver, and, and we need to do this work together. This notion that if I sweep someone across a border to another city in our region, I've solved anybody's problem, we all know is ridiculous. And five sitting mayors in the metro area have not only said, we'll endorse that homeless plan and work together, but they endorse me as a candidate. And so I would do it with uh, the region. Let's move on to a fun one. Uh, being mayor comes with special privileges. It does? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm sure you could call up pretty much anyone in the city and get to know them over lunch. Which local celebrity would you most want to share a meal with? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, th I think I might share a meal with Brother Jeff. Brother Jeff, the yeah. local media personality. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just got to know him a little uh, being on his show and- I just really admire and respect him, and I think that would be a fun lunch. Brother Jeff, interesting answer. Um, all right, so the last big question is um, the whole reason why we're doing this, inviting all 17 candidates for these interviews. We really want to hear a fresh vision for the future of Denver. What is your vision for Denver's future? Hmm. Well, I think it's fresh. First, I'm going to share with you, I um, uh, my, my family has really struggled in my life. Uh, and you know, there was a long time I felt a lot of shame about my family's story. And now what I realize, it's, uh, it's really a model of strength, and I'm extremely proud of my family. Uh, and I share that with you as I talk about our future, because my story, uh, I lost my father to violent crime. My family received government assistance when I was a kid. Uh, my husband struggled with addiction, and my girls and I lost him to suicide. I share that because my vision of Denver is a city where... We have built uh, social capital across our city uh, and made commitments um, that ensure hardworking families can own a home again, that our kids get the education they deserve, 
because it changed the course of my life, my education, that our downtown is vibrant and thriving, and that those most vulnerable are housed and sheltered, and that you have real access to economic opportunity. And we address the inequities we see in our economy when I say that. And you feel safe in your neighborhood. Like, to me, that I guess I call that the promise of Denver. It's the promise I saw here, even through my family's struggles. And I feel I got to raise my girls under, and I want to restore it for every single resident in Denver. Kelly Bruff, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your campaign? Kellybruff.com. But I better spell it, huh? Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, actually, yes. <laughs> K-E-L-L-Y-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. Well, Kelly Bruff, thanks so much for joining me. Oh my goodness, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness. What we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these episodes each weekend leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.